0: You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit truegreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed.
1: If you're shopping while working, eating, or even listening to this podcast, you as cashback. Download the free Rakuten app and never miss a deal. Or go to Rakuten.com to start getting the most bang for your buck. That's
0: R-A-K-U-T-E-N. This is Intelligence Matters with former acting director of the CIA, Michael Morrell. Brought to you by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours.
1: Brian Fogel is an American filmmaker. He is best known for his 2017 documentary film, Icarus, which won the 2018 Academy Award for Best Documentary Feature and which was instrumental in the International Olympic Committee's banning of Russia from the 2018 Winter Games. Brian is now releasing his most recent film, The Dissident, which chronicles Saudi Arabia's 2018 assassination of Jamal Khashoggi. We'll be right back with that discussion after a word from our sponsor, I'm Michael Morrell, and this is an episode of Intelligence Matters Declassified, real spy stories, in this case, told by an investigative filmmaker.
0: Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Bite, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks.
1: Brian, welcome to Intelligence Matters. You're the first filmmaker that we've ever had on the show. And given the subject matter, it is great to have you with us. So welcome.
2: Well, thank thank you, Michael. Uh, uh, I've listened to you many times um, and uh, honored to be with you and discussing a story that um, uh, has so much importance in our world.
1: So, Brian, um, I just want to make sure you know that we have two different kinds of episodes here on the show. One, as you might expect, are national security experts talking about some particular topic. And a second type are former intelligence and law enforcement officers who are telling true spy stories that either they were involved with or that they witnessed during, during their careers. And we call that second type of episode, Intelligence Matters Declassified. That's how I think of this episode even though you're not obviously a former intelligence or law enforcement officer. And I think of it as an intelligence matters declassified because the story that you tell in your new film, the dissident is a true story of a covert intelligence operation. It's just not one that is particularly positive. So let me, let me start Brian by asking you to just tell our listeners what the dissident is about. Well, the,
2: the dissident, um, was really, a, as I look at it, is the untold story, a thriller uh, behind the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, uh, the Washington Post-Saudi journalist that walked into his country's consulate in Istanbul on October 2nd to be brutally uh, murdered and dismembered, while his fiance Hatisha Jengiz, uh, waited for him for marriage
1: documents. And she waited for him for quite some time outside, and he never he never came out
2: it is uh it, exactly and um you know it's it's a story that I think I'm sure many of your listeners will recall and uh that just you know captivated uh the world in its brutality in its kind of ripped from the pages uh uh rendition gone horribly wrong. And all of these spy and intelligence thriller aspects uh, to it. And of course, you know, in the the, the tremendous loss, um, I mean, the unfathomable loss uh, to Atija Jengiz, who literally believed that he was walking into a consulate to get paperwork to marry her, uh, to then find out in the days that followed what had happened to the man that she loved. Um, and of course, there were many other threads to this story that the film um, The Dissident gets into and uncovers and unravels. Um, but the core of the story is, is the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, the why, the how, and, uh, and really shedding light onto what is happening uh, in Saudi Arabia.
1: So, Brian, when, when and where can folks see the film?
2: Well, the film is coming out in limited theaters, uh, you know, with COVID and cities where theaters are uh, available December 25th. But it will be available across all video on demand platforms January 8th. So whether that's Comcast or DirecTV or on iTunes, you know, Apple or for rental on Amazon, Roku or Xbox, basically anywhere that you can go to rent a movie The Dissident uh, will be available beginning on uh, January 8th.
1: So Brian, I was lucky enough to see the film. I watched it a week ago. And I have to tell you and my listeners that it is one of the most powerful documentaries that I have ever seen. It is riveting, chilling, tragic, infuriating. I can actually go on and on and on. It unleashes a, a host of emotions so from an investigative journalism and storytelling perspective, I wanted to just say a huge congratulations to you and your team. And that kind of leads me to ask, what led you to do this film? You know, why did you choose this this topic at this time?
2: Um, you know, the my prior film, Icarus, um, as you may recall, unraveled the decades-long uh, Russian doping scandal that basically, right. you know, uh, cheated international competition and the Olympics, you know, for decades. And in that story, um, I ended up protecting the life of Dr. Gregory Rechenkov, uh, literally uh, bringing him to the United States, working with him as we brought the story to the New York Times, and then following that story um, as it had unfolded and his evidence was corroborated over the year that followed that film uh, which launched in, on Netflix in August of 2017, five months later um, led to the banning of Russia uh, from the 2018 PyeongChang Olympic games. And in March of 2018, I was humbled uh, by being awarded the Academy Award uh, for right. the work of that film. Right. And you know, coming out of that experience and um, every every <clears throat> every minute, every, every time that I'm able to connect with uh, Gregory Rachenkov through his legal counsel or through his security, um, the conversation always talks with, uh, hey, Gregory, how are you? And he goes, I'm alive, Brian. And I said, that's great. And he goes, uh, you know, you saved my life.
1: Mm.
2: And, uh, you know, shouldering that that responsibility a burden. And in the case of Gregory, um, he remains a whistleblower in hiding uh, with the target on his back for the rest of his life as as Putin uh, will continue to hunt him, it gave me a feeling of a, of a burden and a sense of responsibility to keep telling stories that I felt mattered. And in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi, What I saw was complicity, essentially, with every government in the world continuing to do business uh, with Saudi Arabia and the kingdom, despite these horrific uh, human rights abuses. Um, What I came to learn in uh, seeking distribution for the film, where, of course, I would have wanted the film to be on a global streamer after, you know, an incredible response at the Sundance Film Festival that included, you know, Hillary Clinton there and multiple standing ovations and uh, and wonderful critical reception, was that every one of these uh, huge global uh, media companies, streaming companies, were more concerned uh, about their business interests uh, with the kingdom and being able to take investment from the kingdom uh, than they were in the you know, horrific record of human rights abuses that has happened uh, in Saudi Arabia on, under the watch of uh, of Mohammed bin Salman, and uh, and has continued to unfold. Um, you know, during his time as the Crown Prince, and so you know these these kind of factors um, that happen, I guess, compel me to want to tell stories like this. You know, I, I decided essentially um, in mid October as Saudi Arabia. Had in fact uh, admitted that Jamal had in fact died inside that consulate, I thought to myself, this might be my next film. And that hinged on what I considered these three variables, which was having the exclusive access with Hatija Jengas, um, being able to have exclusive access and participation with Omar Abdulaziz, the the young Saudi dissident uh, who had been working with Jamal at the time of his death, um, and perhaps most importantly, the Turkish government. Right. Uh, they would trust me and work with me to provide the you know, behind-the-scenes evidence uh, and, and information uh, and details and interviews and surveillance footage and transcript of this crime uh, so that I could you know, craft this film.
1: So um, Brian, let me ask you about the the reaction of the large global platforms that you talked about. Do you think that they were actually under pressure from Saudi Arabia not to distribute your film or was that a calculation on their own part of not wanting to upset the kingdom?
2: You know, it's hard to assess what was going on behind the scenes. Um, However, you know, as we know, uh, I think it was about a, a year ago, Netflix decided to pull Hassan Minaj's Patriot Act episode out of Saudi Arabia. The episode, uh, Hassan Minaj basically dissected the Khashoggi murder um, and poked fun of MBS. Uh, Netflix was asked by the kingdom to take that episode off the air uh, and they did. And when asked about it, the, the CEO of Netflix came forward very publicly and said, we're not a truth to power company. We're an entertainment company. Mm. Um, so, you know, and then there's been further stories written that there were other compromises uh, and kind of negotiating terms made between the streamer um, and, uh, and the kingdom to keep other content uh, on the air there. So, you know, I, I do believe that, you know, between the uh, hundreds, perhaps billions of dollars a year that Saudi Arabia... Spends in lobbying lobbying efforts in the United States. Uh, many of these stories have emerged in the fallout of a Khashoggi murder, be it uh, McKinsey, the consulting firm, uh, or you know the story uh, in the Guardian and CNBC of how they're how Saudi Arabia is actively retaining all sorts of lobbyists right now, knowing that the Biden administration will not be as friendly to the kingdom as Trump. Um, that you have to believe that. That there was either a direct pressure or a soft pressure campaign um, being launched by the kingdom or its lobbyists uh, to see to it that this film did not find, you know, a big uh, home among uh, one of the major global streamers.
1: Yeah, You know, um, in your mind, this is the, your discussion about your previous film and this one and the link between the two in your mind, they come together in my mind in a slightly different way. You know, I'm not sure if people realize how unique it is for a country to do what the Saudis did here, right? Which is essentially to assassinate in a brazen way, a journalist, a citizen, but somebody who's a resident of another country the way they did. And there's really not too many leaders in the world who operate that way. And Vladimir Putin, right, is actually one of them. So in my mind, these two stories come to way in a Come together in a different way than they've come together for you, and I just wondered how that strikes you.
2: Well, I mean, you're you're spot on in, in this assessment, and you know, I don't I don't believe that Jamal Khashoggi uh, would have been murdered, especially in the in the way that he was, had other authoritarian regimes. You know, uh, meaning uh, uh, if you if you look at the Putin playbook, right. Just in this latest poisoning of of of, uh, of Alexander Novani, the opposition leader in Germany, you know many things you can glean from this. First of all, is while there might be um, a a global you know uh, universal I guess what you what you would call a smack on on the wrist uh, for crimes such as these, it's not like any member of the G twenty is actually enacting sanctions, actually taking action outside of the Magnitsky Act, which Bill Browder, um, I'm sure you're, you know, who you're aware of, you know, has, has made it his personal work uh, and his life work to basically go get these Magnitsky sanctions. But um, it's not like, it's not like anyone's ever doing anything about it. Even Angela Merkel in the fallout of Navalny uh, Navalny murder while she you know, uh, made statements that this was terrible, and while Intelligence, you know, confirmed that this was in fact Novichok, Novichok, the poison, and that they believed with high confidence that you know Putin and Russian intelligence was behind this. Um, it's not like there's a true punishment from this. You saw this, of course, in the in the fact uh, in the murder of uh, or poisoning of, of Skripal, and you know, and the genesis of this is 2006 with Alexander Litvinenko, where here a former KGB FSB fa- spy defects uh, to London and is poisoned by polonium basically nuclear radiation uh, that could have only come uh, from uh, essentially you know Russian intelligence and and Putin and nobody took action and so what these authoritarian uh, leaders are learning and even look at you know the poisoning of Kim jong-il's uh, brother
1: brother uh, right
2: uh, you know, is, is that is that while this behavior might garner newspaper headlines and might you know get world leaders to condemn these actions, there's actually no true punishment uh, for these crimes. And you know, even in the aftermath of the Novani death, and Putin was you know interviewed by this, you know, he go oh, did, did you poison him? And he goes, absolutely not. He goes, well, what do you? But he is a traitor. And treason is the highest crime, and, and treason uh, is a crime that should be punishable by death. So, I mean,
1: I he, mean, he admitted it. He absolutely admitted but, it. Yeah.
2: But, I yeah. mean, you know, in, in, in his roundabout way, he flat out admitted it. So, I mean, and, and so, so what we're seeing and is do, do we believe that Saudi Arabia and MBS thought that there was going to be a bug inside? That consulate um, that was going to know all the details of this on top of his fiance waiting outside for him, on top of him leaving his computer and devices with her, Uh, on top of all the surveillance footage that Turkey was able to gather to find the body double and and the investigation to uncover that they had ordered 70 pounds of meat, uh, literally in the minutes that followed uh, his murder, to go burn his body at the consul general's home in a tandoor oven. Of course, uh, Saudi Arabia was not uh, anticipating that, but I do believe that they felt that they could get away with it. And you know, and if you look at their relationship with the Trump administration, I mean, Trump has publicly come out and said you know, uh, I'm not jeopardizing our relationship or the weapon sales or the billions of dollars in business, you know, to take action against this crime. And in Bob Woodard's book, Caught on Audio Tape, Trump, you know, bragged that he saved MBS's ass. Um, So, you know, so clearly there was a high level decision made, um, regardless of them getting caught, that they believed that they could get away with it. And they have.
1: We're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsor. Then we'll be right back with more of a discussion with Brian Fogle.
0: Man, that sunset is gorgeous.
1: Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in.
0: Oh, burger time.
1: So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you.
0: I could stay here forever.
1: Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. Brian, I want to ask you about the access that the Turks gave you. And I'm wondering two things. One is, one is how difficult was it to get that? And why do you think they did that at the end of the day?
2: Look, um, you know, uh, they're gaining that. Trust of the Turkish government were ultimately you know the only way to have gotten those interviews um clearly was the President you know giving his blessing to his chief prosecutor and to um uh, you know he's the Bill Barr Department of Justice and his forensic examiners and his spokesperson, his official spokesperson, who's considered the second most powerful man in Turkey, ferretin Altun, uh to discuss this matter and um, you can look you know far and wide, and none of these guys have ever sat for an interview in regards to this case before.
1: Right. Um,
2: not only that the vast majority of what's in that film, from all that inf- all those photos ins- that they took inside the consulate and the consul generals and the police footage, is still unreleased, um, as well as the transcript. And, and we have, you know, they ultimately provided me with the 37 page transcript. And that's not in the hands of CNN or the BBC, um, or any uh, news source other than, you know, intelligence operations that they provided that to. So, you know, this was a, a very, very long process of building trust, and and you can ask yourself, okay, well, what was what's Turkey's political intentions? What were they gaining by this? And I don't have the answer to that. And of course, Turkey has her own human rights issues; journalists jailed uh, just uh, last week. There's a story that they've you know imprisoned, I think, 186 people for life in the uh, in the coup attempt uh, in 2016. But um, in this case, in this matter, Turkey has been and still is on the right side of history, on the right side uh, of this matter. And, uh, and so to me, I made a very, um, I guess, uh, uh, I made a, a bargain with, with the Turks in, in saying that, listen, I am a truth teller. I'm a documentary filmmaker. I'm here to shed light on this story. I'm not here to disparage Turkey. Uh, That's not the film I'm making. And if you guys trust me and allow me to have this access, I'm going to do my best uh, to bring this murder and atrocity into a cinematic uh, art form and hopefully to shed light uh, on the story behind this story. And, uh, you know, they agreed and I spent, I mean, for every day that I would get to shoot, you know, in, in Istanbul, there was another 10 days of meetings mm-hmm. um, in, in that sort of trust building. And, and that is kind of how the ac- access was gained uh, and the trust had ensued that, you know, Turkey was trusting me, I was trusting them, and this story was important to both of us.
1: So, Brian, you mentioned earlier that your previous film, Icarus, actually generated a reaction, right? It led the International Olympic Committee to ban Russia from the 2018 Winter Olympics. Are you hoping that this film generates some sort of reaction um, that gets the United States to finally bring some justice to to what happened here? You
2: know, um, eh, listen, the timing, the release of this film, Um, in some ways is is really great Um, because had it released um, essentially during the Trump administration, while it would have shown uh, the Trump administration's desire not to hold Saudi Arabia accountable, despite both the Senate and House of Representatives passing legislation uh, to block weapon sales to the kingdom, uh, putting forward bills to enact sanctions against Saudi Arabia for the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. All of these measures essentially were vetoed uh, by the Trump administration. And in the film, I intentionally didn't want to create a bipartisan film. I, I wasn't trying to create a, a film where you know, 47% of you know, voters in the United States were going to go, oh, this is propaganda. And so, you know, to that extent, the facts are the facts and the handful of voices that do comment on the Trump administration's decisions are, you know, his advocates. It's Rand Paul, it's Bob Corker, it's Lindsey Graham. You know, Uh, I I didn't I didn't use uh, Democratic voices, but, you know, Biden has come forward very publicly He even made a statement on October 2nd, um, the second anniversary of Jamal's uh, assassination. Um, that if elected president, he would work to hold Saudi Arabia accountable, that he would re-examine the U.S.-Saudi relationship. And so in many ways, I think the release of the film, uh, you know, January 8th across uh, VOD um, is a perfect timing uh, as Biden comes into office to remind, you know, people of this murder, of this relationship, and perhaps have a different outcome. Um, I don't think it's about, quote, unquote, justice for Jamal. We we know that MBS is not leaving power. But, you know, there's a lot of positives that can come from this. And I believe that if there's enough pressure put on the Saudi administration, uh, women's rights activists such as Lujan al-Hatul, who is facing a 20-year sentence right now, simply for... Uh, speaking up for women's rights in her country, uh, literally why she's facing, uh, she's on trial, has been tortured in prison, and they're asking for 20 years. Uh, Her crime is basically saying that women should have a right, whether or not they want to uh, wear a full burqa and cover themselves in public, and women should have a right uh, to leave their home without the consent of a male 18 years of older in their house, the guardian system. Um, for that, she's looking to spend 20 years of prison in in prison. So there are things that that can be done with enough pressure. That people like Lujan al-Hatul or Assam al zamal the eco- the economist, or Raif Badawi, if he is still indeed in, alive, which we don't know, um, <clears throat> these sort of activists and political prisoners could be set free. On top of Omar's brothers that sit in. Jail for two years without charges, having been tortured. His friends who sit in prisons without charges. Um, and, you know, the over 800 beheadings that took place in the kingdom last year. And according to many human rights uh, organizations, the majority of these beheadings were activists under the age of 25 who dared to send a tweet, who dared to attend a protest, or to say anything uh, that was not in love and support of Mohammed bin
1: Salman. Right. I want to ask you a couple of specific questions about the film. And, and, and the first is I think the film actually makes news in a number of ways. And one of the ways is to explain why this happened and why it happened when it did, which I think a lot of people were scratching their heads about, right? How did, how did Jamal Khashoggi go from journalist and critic and reformer to dangerous dissident can you talk about that a little bit? Because I think that is, is newsworthy.
2: You know, what, what, what you see um, is, uh, you know, in, in Jamal Khashoggi, uh, when, when he was murdered, he was 60 years old. And this, this was a man um, who was educated in the United States, who was fluent in English, and had spent the majority of his life essentially working as a quote-unquote journalist um, for the Saudi royal family, he owned a place in Washington, Virginia, long, long before he went into self-exile uh, and and left the kingdom in the year before his death. Um, so this was was truly a, a guy who, you know, who grew up uh, or you know who was educated in the West, who had seen how uh, democracies work, who saw how, you know, there could be a parliamentary system and who loved his country. Um, And even though he had spent most of his life essentially working as a liaison, you know, slash journalist, um, I guess almost lobbyist uh, for the kingdom, he was not against the royal family. And as MBS took power, what Jamal saw was that the forward-facing appearance of MPS was as this great reformer, as this great young leader, as this great crown prince that was going to lead his country into the future and his vision 2030 and open up Saudi Arabia to tourism and help uh, bring movies to Saudi Arabia and music and, and open up some, some, some freedoms that the people didn't have before. But at right. the same time, behind this, what Jamal saw, especially as an insider, was this crackdown that he had never experienced in his life. Um, you know, be it the crackdown at the Ritz Carlton, where uh, in uh, I believe this was—I uh, can't remember—it was uh, in 2017, in, in 2017, late, yeah, yeah, where where MBS basically rounds up you know, all of his, uh, you know, friends and family and, and the wealth in the country and shakes them down and, and tortures them uh, and, you know, for, for money. And basically it's a mafia operation uh, yeah. of people who were, who were, who were at that Ritz there. Some of them are still there basically going, you know, uh, I'm the boss, you can give me half or what Jamal was experiencing in that kingdom, uh, whether it was through Sad al Katani his enforcer or others basically going don't speak don't write don't tweet shut up and and so as he's watching you know these big lobbyists bring MBS onto the world stage and here's MBS in America appearing in a suit and meeting with Bill Gates and President Obama or you know Obama and Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos and others what he's seeing in his country is A fear that he had never experienced before, that basically people were truly silenced. And rather than be silenced, Jamal decided to choose self-exile. And he comes to Washington, gets a job with the Washington Post, and he's finally, first time in his life, free to write his opinions. And what he is writing is essentially, I love my country. I like Mohammed bin Salman. I like the royal family, but I believe that if you're going to be a great reformer, you can't just reform in one place. You have to also be open to freedom of thought, freedom of opinion, and allow others um, to have a voice in leadership. Um, and for this,
1: he was murdered. Yeah. Let me also ask, you know, the film suggests that the murder might have been viewed from Riyadh on a video teleconference, and perhaps even directed from Riyadh. And I'm wondering, is that a circumstantial case based on the room that was chosen for the murder, or is there stronger evidence for that in the Turkish transcripts or from other sources?
2: Well, um, amazingly enough, um, and there's a lot of things that, you know, in the sensationalism of, of the story. Uh, that Turkey uh, did not disclose. And part of the transcript that I have actually contains a lot of pieces, um, essentially in the days leading up to the murder. And, and one of the things that the Saudis do is two days before they murder Jamal, they literally send um, a technology um, you know, uh, expert entourage to sweep the consulate for bugs and somehow they do not find the single bug in the consulate. And that bug was in the media room. Uh, And you see this, photos of this uh, uh, in in the film. And the reason why that room was chosen was it was the only room within the consulate that had a secure video connection and secure way to communicate back to Riyadh. And so I guess the choice was made that, hey, if there was a bunch of bugs or whatever that was, they'd probably be found. Um, But if there was just one and there were sensitive communications, this was the room it should be in. And that, of course, turned out to be the room uh, that Jamal was murdered in. In the transcript that I obtained after he is murdered, uh, right before they go to uh, dismember his body, the transcript basically goes dark for uh, about an hour and a half. And um, while I don't know this to be the case or true, what I was essentially told or was implied was as they uh, dismembered Jamal, uh, they made a call back to Riyadh to show Riyadh, whether that was Saad al Qatani or MBS, uh, that you know Jamal was in fact uh, murdered and dismembered. And then there is a part in that transcript, which, you know, I think is, is, uh, makes anybody's heart drop is as they're, uh, removing, uh, the, the bags, the body bags from the room. Uh, I think it was Mutreb said there was a, uh, one of the bags contained apparently his hands in it. Yeah. Uh, he said, no, 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 leave that bag for me. Fingerprints uh and what i was told and what was that implied was that they brought his hands and perhaps his head uh back to saudi
1: and you mentioned earlier you mentioned earlier rendition and there's you know there's some some folks who say this was a rendition gone wrong right that the idea was to take him back to saudi arabia and something went terribly wrong is it is is that your assessment or is your your assessment that that It was a planned murder all along.
2: Um, The murder of Jamal was 100% a a planned murder. I mean, you don't send 15 men, including the head of the, you know, uh, a forensics guy who performs uh, autopsies with a kit and a bone saw to Istanbul if you're not planning to murder him. Um, you know, they, they injected him with sedatives and apparently they were literally embalming him while he was alive so that the blood would co- coagulate uh, and circulate through his body uh, in his dying uh, moments uh, with a, with a uh, coagulant and, uh, and what you use when you embalm somebody. So, I mean, you, you, don't, you don't send uh, a team like that to carry out a rendition. So, I mean, clearly there was a plan to murder him. They had scoped out multiple places um, as to where they were going to bring the body. And there's parts of the transcript that talk about, you know, where, where they can go. They had looked at, uh, at, at the Belgrade Forest. Uh, they had looked at a farm. And this had become, you know, uh, this, this was part of the Turkish investigation and apparently ultimately decided on on the Consul General's house, because there was a tandoor oven there, that they had serviced just in like uh, the couple days leading up to his murder to make sure that it would burn at uh, whatever the degree was, and that they then ordered 70 pounds of meat to apparently burn his body with the meat so it wouldn't leave traces of evidence. So the idea that this was a rendition, I don't believe... Uh, not even for five seconds that this there was going to be a rendition. I mean, they even brought a guy among their kill team to be a body double, and we see him put on a fake beard, and literally walk out the consulate, uh, and dump Jamal's clothes that he had been wearing uh, in a in a public place uh, near the blue mosque, and then continue on his business as usual in the surveillance footage. So, under what auspices? Was there a rendition ever planned when these people are in place and even have disguises to make them look like Jamal?
1: Right. Brian, you have been fantastic with your time. I just have one more question for you. We're running out of time, so we need to be quick here. I'm just wondering if you find it all ironic that the main source of information that you use to nail MBS and the Saudi perpetrators here was collected by a Turkish intelligence operation, that the world knowing the truth here, and your film outlining it in great detail, was the result of the Turks spying on the Saudis in a very significant way. I'm just wondering how you think about that.
2: Meaning, uh, was this a, a Turkish bug? Is that really your question?
1: No, my question is, I just wonder how you think about the fact that, that we know all of this, right, because the Turks were spying on the Saudis. And, and just how you think about that. Well, listen, um, I,
2: I, think, I think what we know about intelligence operations around the world is that they are intelligence operations. Um, we don't know. Until we know. Right. Um, And and usually um, whether it is, you know, Snowden uh, letting us know, you know, what the NSA was doing or its disclosures that come years down the line. You know, when intelligence data can be released. um, What we do know is that, you know, nations uh, and countries um, wish to spy uh, on each other. And most of the time, you know, uh, do so without disclosure. Clearly, you know, uh, Turkey and Saudi Arabia have, have had uh, tense, tense relations. And I, I think Turkey's um, holding Saudi Arabia accountable in this and basically disclosing uh, what happened and the details of this murder, you know, was, uh, uh, was truly because Turkey understood that Saudi Arabia was trying to frame them for this murder. And so, I mean, the, you know, I I mean, Erdogan and his administration, to understand that you would come onto Turkish soil, murdered someone in such a capacity on Turkish soil in their own consulate, thwarted the investigation, uh, and then were going to frame the murder on Turkey. As I saw it in meeting with, you know, countless Turkish officials There was no money, no ransom, nothing that was going to be paid, you know, uh, to make this go away. And Saudi Arabia, one of the stories that I heard um, was in the days after the murder. You know, Turkey was basically, you know, going to Saudi intelligence and to the king and going, hey, guys, um, we have proof uh, that Jamal was murdered. We know you murdered him. We have the audio. We have the surveillance footage. We know what happened. You guys need to confess, and if you don't confess, we're going to confess for you. And Saudi Arabia apparently went, ha, 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 whatever. You know, you don't have anything. And uh, they then said, we do, and you should come to Istanbul. So apparently Saudi Arabia sent an entourage to Istanbul. They played uh, the Saudis the audio and said to them, look, you're going to confess um, you know, I don't know the timeline they gave them. in the next day, the next 48 hours, whatever it is, or we're going to confess for you. And, uh, <clears throat> and so Turkey sharing this information with the world, um, is the only reason why, uh, we truly know what happened. And, uh, and I think it was a brave choice, uh, by Turkey to do this because clearly, you know, had they kept this silenced, uh, I can only imagine there could have been, You know, a lot of bribes paid, a lot of, you know, various economic aid uh, for Turkey, um, a lot of, you know, uh, political ties reestablished. And the decision by Turkey and and Erdogan was, uh, no, it's more important for us to bring this story forward.
1: The film is The Dissident. The filmmaker is Brian Fogel. Brian, thank you for sharing your time with us.
2: Look, it's um, it's a it's an honor to be speaking with you, and uh, and I hope audiences will go and see it. You know, I did a, a lot of work to to craft the film into, you know, into a thriller, into a theatrical, cinematic thriller, and so despite the, um, you know, the brutality of this murder, I really wanted uh, to craft a film that kept viewers on the edge of their seats in hope of. Not only learning, but wanting to take action uh, and bring about change for so many that have been suffering in Saudi Arabia, and also, um, you know, Hatisha Jengas, who loved Jamal, his family, and uh, and Omar Abdulaziz, who, you know, to this day, uh, his brothers and, and friends uh, sit imprisoned uh, simply for knowing him.
1: Brian, thank you so much.
2: Thank you. Nice talking to
1: you, Michael. That was Brian Fogel. I'm Michael Morrell. Please join us next week for another episode of Intelligence Matters.
0: Intelligence Matters is sponsored by Lockheed Martin. Your mission is ours. This show is produced by Olivia Gassis, Jamie Benson, Jake Rosen, Paulina Smolinski, and Ariana Freeman. For more from this week's show, visit cbsnews.com. Intelligence Matters is a production of CBS Audio.